All right, y'all can be seated. Have y'all ever heard from your parents something like this? All right, one time was enough. You never heard that? Have you ever used that as parents? Once was enough, don't try it again. Heard that from my dad periodically, and I always knew that I better not try it the second time, whatever it was. Today, we're going to be looking at once was enough, and, uh, but it's a good once was enough. Let me read for you a passage that's not up there. It's uh, backtracking a little bit to uh, bring some continuity. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and today's message is going to begin in chapter 15. And I've titled the message, One Sacrifice Was Enough. One of the things that we've gotten into in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 and going into chapter 10 is we have a long teaching passage, all right? It's just that there's no commands in it telling us what to do, what not to do. It's just essentially a long passage teaching us about Jesus' sacrifice. And really, part of the focus of that sacrifice was one time was enough. That's all it took. When Jesus died, that was enough. I want to read the three verses leading into where we're going to be today. Uh, the scripture says, beginning in verse 12, he entered into the most holy place once for all time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, obtained, obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption, I'm sorry. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a young cow, sprinkled those who are defiled, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve a living God? Once was enough. Jesus one time gave up his life, shed his blood, and entered into the true holy place, the holy of holies, into the presence of God as a sacrifice for all of our sins. That one time was enough. One of the things that we're going to see as we begin in, in verse 15, though, is the writer of Hebrews focus in on why was it necessary that Jesus died. He's going to give us three reasons that his death was necessary. So read with me, beginning in verse 15, and we'll go ahead and read all of the text down through the end of chapter 9, and then we'll come back and deal with this in two parts. The scripture says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will is valid only when people die, since there is a never, it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command has been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven, in the heavens, to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. 
So let me pause there for just a moment. The copies that he's talking about, the, the altar that was on earth, the tabernacle that was on earth, the holy place that was on earth was simply a copy of the true holy of holies, the true living quarters of, the, of God Almighty. And so if it's necessary for, for the, the copies on earth to be sprinkled with blood, even more so, blood must be shed for entrance into the true holy place, the true holy of holies, the presence of God. For Christ did not enter, verse 24, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest entered the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this the judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen? Once was enough. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice, the son of God who had stepped out of heaven and shed his blood for us, that his sacrifice was enough. One drop of his blood, perfect, pure, innocent blood was enough to cleanse the sins of all mankind. One sacrifice, one death of a perfect savior was enough. Walk through this with me. Why was Jesus' death necessary, though? This is one of the questions that our culture struggles with. What, what makes his death necessary? Now, we got into this a couple weeks ago when I, when I talked about how truly we have a hard time grasping the weight and the magnitude of sin. We don't understand how much sin breaks the heart of God. Because it breaks our relationship with the holy God. God is holy, and when we sin against him, it separates us from God. God's greatest desire, in fact, that the story of all of the Bible could be really wrapped up in the idea that God desires a relationship with his people whom he's created in his image. He created Adam and Eve, and then he had a relationship with them in the garden. And sin broke that relationship. And from that time forward, God has been at work to restore that relationship with broke, with it, that was broken by sin. And in Adam and Eve, he gave us the first illustration. Sin exposed Adam and Eve. Sin left them naked, literally and figuratively. It left their soul bare before God. And the only suitable way for their sin to be covered was the sacrifice, something had to die. And God sacrificed an animal, and Adam and Eve took that skin and used it to make clothing for themselves to cover the shame of their sin. Blood had to be shed that the shame of their sin could be covered. And that theme you see throughout Scripture from that day forward. And it is in the shedding of blood that we understand the weight and the magnitude of our sin against God. And it's because of that that we're able and willing to turn back toward him. And so, so blood had to be shed 
for the old covenant to be understood, for the old covenant to be implemented. And you see that here in Scripture. Even, and just as death had to, had to come and blood had to be shed for the old covenant, so also was death necessary for the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews, and without going word by word and verse by verse, and in verses 15 really down through about verse 22, he explains to us this idea that, that what God did under the Old Testament, under that first covenant, was to give us a picture of the real thing that was to come. The tabernacle was essentially to give us an image of what it would take to come into a holy place of worship, and even more so, what would be required to go into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. And all of the sacrificial system and the shedding of blood that was required for all of that under that old covenant was to help us to understand the weight of our sin and the, the, the damage that it had done in our relationship between us and God. And so then scripture tells us here that just as death was necessary for the first, under the first covenant, for God's people to understand the weight of their sin, even more so, death was necessary for the implementation of the new covenant. There is no way that we would have a handle or an understanding of the power of sin, the power of forgiveness, the, the power, the, the, the fact that life is truly in the hands of God, Jesus holds life in, in his own hands, none of that would become real to us outside of the shedding of the blood of God's son. And the second covenant, just as the first covenant then, required death. Jesus' death was necessary for the second covenant. And that's why the night before Jesus died, he's sitting around the, the table with his disciples and, and he's giving them something that they're going to hold on to, that we still hold on to all the way into the future. We call it the Lord's Supper, call it communion, uh, the Eucharist. It, it, at that table, Jesus held up that glass of wine and asked each one of them to sip it. And he said, going forward, you're going to do this in remembrance of me. This wine represents the new covenant that is in my blood. Second. Death was necessary for forgiveness of sins. You see him flesh that, that out here as well. Verses 18 and, and following. That is why the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves, goats, along with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle, the artifacts of worship, according to the law, almost everything he purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Because Sin is an affront to God because sin against God is so damaging. Sin requires punishment. You know, I've, every once in a while I, I have these thoughts, and maybe it's the preacher in me because I've told some of these stories and illustrations. Every once in a while I get this idea, you know, maybe I'll watch an old Western and, and I start feeling a little bit uh, connected to the bad guys. I think, wouldn't it be cool just to try one time to rob a bank? No. Just to see if, 
just to see if I could get away with it. You know, sometimes bank robbers are just dumb. Some are just dumb. And it seems like that if you were smart enough, you could, and then I start thinking, you know, there's probably been people that had the same thought before, and that's what got them in trouble, right? But what if, but, but you know, imagine I robbed, I didn't kill anybody, I didn't hurt anybody, I just went in, handed the note, robbed the bank, you know, got the money, had a good time, with, and, and I get caught, and I probably would get caught because I probably would not be a very good bank robber, hadn't had a lot of practice. I get caught, and I'm brought before the judge, and I tell the judge, judge, I'm 52 years old. I've, I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. I've loved people. I've preached funerals. I've served people. I have, I have, I have worked hard at, at, at sharing the good news of the gospel. And just this, this one time, this is the only bank I've ever robbed, just one time. It's the only bank that I've ever robbed. I didn't hurt anybody. Couldn't you just let me off? Well, you know, that may work in Austin. It's gotten liberal enough that you may get away with it. Probably would not work in Tarrant County because we understand that a crime deserves punishment. That's the world that God has put together. That's the, the, the rules of, of society. That crime, you could have, you know, I could have 30 years of adulthood of service and sacrifice. And one mistake, I'm going to have to pay for that one mistake? Yep, sure are. So how many sins does it take for you to be condemned before a holy God? One. I want to share something with you. This is, this is a little extra today. This is an excursus, that they would call it in the academic world. I've heard this thing thrown around for a long time that, you know, all sin's the same. Right? No sin's worse than other. That is bull. All sin is not the same, okay? God holds you accountable for gossip and God holds you accountable for murder, but you're held accountable at a different level for murder than you are for gossip, okay? Ultimately, there's different levels of punishment for different sins. Now, there's one way, one way that all sin is the same. All sin separates you from God. You don't have to rob a bank to be separated from God. So in that way, and in that way alone, are all sins the same. A, a, a bad thought is not the same as murdering somebody. Okay? Except that God knows our thoughts, and, and, and our thoughts can separate us from a holy God. And so in that way, sin is the same. And, and because I have sinned, even though I haven't robbed a bank, because I have sinned, the only hope I have is that someone pay the penalty for my sin. Now, the problem with that is I'm not holy, so I can't pay the penalty before a holy and righteous God for my own sin. That's what leaves me without hope before a holy God. And so God, in his grace and in his mercy, sent his son from his throne room of heaven to step down on earth and to be born of a virgin, to be born pure and holy without the stain of sin in any way, to walk on this earth sinless and then voluntarily lay his life down as a sacrifice 
for my sin. His blood had to be shed for us to receive forgiveness of sins. That was our only hope. It was through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we could receive forgiveness of sin. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. The third reason that the writer of Hebrews gives us here that Jesus had to die is because his death was necessary for us to have access into the presence of a holy God. Up until that point, no one really had access to God himself. You see, images of Moses enter into the the tent and God's presence would come down, but even Moses had to be careful not to look upon God. Elijah was allowed to have a short glimpse of the backside of God as he passed by. He could not truly come into the presence of a holy God and experience the love and and the, the joy and the peace that can only be found in the presence of a perfect and holy God. You know, one of the advantages that we have, every single one of us who is a child of God, one of the advantages we have over all of the great heroes of the Old Testament We have this advantage over Elijah and Elisha. We have this advantage over Moses and Abraham and and David. We have this advantage over Solomon. We have this advantage over all of the heroes of the Old Testament is we can enter into the presence of a holy God. In fact, the word of God says that once we are cleansed of our sins and we are made new by, by his Holy Spirit and we're given a new heart and we're forgiven of our sins, We have the spirit of the living God indwelling us. He is with us and he is in us. And we can walk in the presence of a holy God. What an incredible privilege we have as the church of Jesus. And the only way that any human being has ever had that kind of access into the presence, the spiritual reality of the presence of a holy God is through the shed blood of Jesus that atoned for our sin. He had to die so that God could bridge that gap of our sin and we could have a relationship with God. Remember what I said, the purpose of God's story. If you, if you take the big picture of scripture, God is all about restoring that relationship with those whom he loved that he created in his image that was broken by our rebellion and our sin. Christ had to die so that we could have access into the presence of a holy God so that we could have a relationship with a holy God. You know, what is so frustratingly sad to me, even personally, is how much I take that for granted. We have the privilege every day of our life to walk in the presence of a holy God. We walk by faith, we walk in obedience, but as long as we're walking in that faith and obedience, we have the privilege of walking in his presence because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. What a beautiful picture. Jesus' death was necessary for the implementation of the new covenant, for forgiveness of sins, and that we might have that relationship restored that God desires to have with us, that we might have access to holy God. So what's the the bottom. I had a hard time with, with what I was going to title this last point. It was really beginning in verse 23 down through verse 28. 
He's got one main point. And so my old school just came out. I'm going to say, look, this is really the bottom line. In the first several verses there, we have the gospel. We have that, that Jesus came and he died to implement a new covenant. Jesus came and died that we could have forgiveness of sins. And Jesus came and died so that we could have access to, to a relationship with God. And so the bottom line, the writer of Hebrews gets to, beginning in verse 23 down, we really see in the last two verses. Read with me this passage again, though. Verse 23 says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Christ did not enter the sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. So we don't just have access into the copy, we have access into the presence of God. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary year by year with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once... And after this, the judgment, so also Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Here's the bottom line. Folks, you and I have all sinned against a holy God and we're separated from him. And the bottom line is, you and I are going to die. I don't care how many times you visit Benny Hinn and he heals you. There's no 2,000-year-old Christians walking around on this earth. We are all going to die. And when we die, we're going to stand before a holy God. And you're going to either stand before a holy God in your sin and try to explain to him why you are okay and you deserve to be there, or you're going to stand before a holy God covered by the blood of Christ and all that the holy all that God is going to see is his son's blood covering your sin the bottom line is in all of this that Hebrews is trying to explain and Hebrews you know for most of us Hebrews is weird and strange and complicated because we didn't grow up in the sacrificial system we didn't grow up with the temple and the sanctuary and all of that and so the writer of Hebrews is trying to speak to those Jews who grew up in that world and help them understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of their dreams, so to speak. All of their religion has been fulfilled, and so there's no more need for religion. There's, there's a relationship with the holy God, and it comes through the blood of Christ. And the bottom line is we all have one chance, one opportunity, one life. We're all going to die once. You're not going to die and get to come back and get to try again. Now, I know there's stories out there of people that have died on the operating table. They floated above their bodies. They, I, I, I wasn't there. I don't know how to interpret those stories. I don't, I, I don't doubt them. And, and I've heard stories of people who had that kind of experience. Their spirit, they, they, they came back and they put their trust and faith in Christ after that. But you want to take that chance? You're going to die finally once and for all and stand before God. And the question is not going to be whether you were a good father or you tried really hard to be a good person or, or, or whether you went to church more Sundays than you missed. That's what I thought when I was a kid. If I just went to church more Sundays than I skipped, God would have to let me into heaven, right? 
My, 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 my good days outweigh my bad days. I didn't take into account when I did Monday through Saturday. It was just Sunday, you know, wasn't in church enough. None of that's going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter is have, have your sins been washed clean by the blood of Christ? Because you have no righteous standing before a holy God. One sin in my life has disqualified me from standing in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. One. And I can assure you, I've got a whole lot more than one. If we think about sins of, that I've committed against God, and then, then maybe a sin that God, I was supposed to do something that, that he called me to do and I didn't do. That's not hard to do once a day. And then Jesus makes it even more clear when he says, look, it's not just what, what you actually do. It's what's in your heart. So, you know, if somebody, you don't have to physically commit adultery. If, if you look at another person and you lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. Well, then there's the, the, the sins of thought. Well, if, if you have one of those each day, which I think would be a pretty good person, let's just say one of those a week. If you could get by all week with one thing that God told you to do, you didn't. One thing God told you don't do, you did. And one dirty thought or, or inappropriate thought or gossipy thought or whatever it happens to be, one thought like that, three a week, 50 times a year, that's 150 a year. And, and then you add that up, maybe you live to be... 50 years old. Oh, gosh, now you're already at 750. You remember my, my discussion about the bank robbery? Imagine standing before the judge and saying, Judge, I'm really a good person. I only sinned three times a week for the last 50 years. I only have 750 sins. Can't you just look over that? And certainly when you stand in the presence of a holy God... Your sin will disqualify you. We have one opportunity, and that opportunity is Jesus. Our only hope is his blood that was shed for our sins. I could not do enough good deeds to cover for my sin. But Jesus' blood shed on the cross, a perfect sacrifice, is enough to cleanse me of my sin. My hope of a relationship with God, my hope of forgiveness of sins, rests fully and completely on what Jesus did on the cross, not what I do in the pulpit or in the classroom or out here in this world. My hope rests on what Jesus did on the cross. So I'm either going to put my faith and my trust fully and completely on Jesus and what he did on the cross, or I'm going to put it on myself. Now, there's some, even in Christian religion, who would say, well, you, you have to trust what Jesus did on the cross, but you also have to add to it whatever you want. You have to say your Hail Marys. Or you have to trust what Jesus did on the cross, but you also have to be baptized. You have to trust what Jesus did on the cross, but you also have to do whatever. Add to it whatever you want. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you add anything to the shed blood of Christ on the cross, it's the same as looking at God and saying, your son's death was necessary, but it's not enough. Jesus' death was necessary, but it's not enough. I still have to do X, Y, or Z. 
That's not what the writer of God's word says. God's word says Jesus' death was enough. It's all you need that you might receive forgiveness of sins. You have to come to a place where you receive it. It's not doing anything to earn it. You just open your heart and say, Lord, you're right. I am a sinner. I want to put my full faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, not in what I can do. And when we come to that point, Scripture says that that the Lord can cleanse us of our sins and we'll be given a new heart. We'll be born again into a new life. Jesus' death atoned for our sins. What he did on the cross was enough to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus died on the cross and your sins might be cleansed and forgiven. Here's the last thing that the writer of Hebrews includes for us. And Jesus is alive. This isn't the end of the story. Jesus is coming back. You know, ultimately, you and I, when we trust Christ by faith... Scripture tells us that we are born again, that we're made new, and that we have an eternal destiny. Our salvation is secured. But then we start living life, and we go through rough times, and we go through struggles. We go through death. We go through divorce. We go through uh, poverty. We go through depression. And we go through the struggles of life and and we start wondering, is this really what salvation is? No, this is not the fulfillment of your salvation. The fulfillment of your salvation is truly when Christ returns and you live in the presence of a holy God. Now for some of us, we're going to get there before Jesus' physical return because we're going to take our last breath on this earth and we're going to wake up spiritually in the presence of God in heaven. Some are still going to be alive. Some Christians are going to be standing alive. Maybe it's on a Sunday morning. I've always kind of hoped that the Lord returned physically when I was at the graveside preaching the funeral. Because scripture says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And man, do I want to see that. (laughs) Now, it may freak me out. Uh, I don't know what all is going to, it ain't going to worry me because it won't be long. The dead in Christ will rise first and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air. And so it's not going to, it's not like I'm going to stand here and watch for a while, Uh, but it's what an exciting moment that's going to be. But Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back to fulfill his purpose and plan of salvation for all who are waiting for him. What's it mean to be waiting for him? It means that you've already made that commitment. You put your full faith and trust in him. And you're not not looking forward to the day that I can kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps and get myself to the presence of God in heaven. You're simply, I put my trust in Christ and I can't wait until he finishes what he started. We're waiting for him to fulfill what he started. And it it, it, it began in the garden That's what the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to understand. When sin began, God began a work to deal with sin. And he began with a sacrifice of animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And you see it flesh itself out as he put religious procedures in place so that the the Israelites would understand the depth and the the, the gravity and, and the death that was caused by their sin. 
So that there was a sacrificial system that required taking of life and shedding of blood so that really we would fully understand that one day our only hope is going to rest in the Son of God who shed his blood for our sin so that we could have everlasting life. And that process will not be fully completed until Jesus returns to gather with him all who have put their trust and faith fully on him and are waiting for his return. So that's my question for you today. Are you waiting for the return of Christ that you might fully receive the blessings of God, the, the fulfillment of your salvation? Are you in some way looking forward to other things? Are you are you trusting in your goodness, trusting in your faithfulness, trusting in your tithing, trusting in your whatever? Or are you waiting, focused, fixed on the one who died on the cross and shed his blood for you because you understand that there is no hope for you to have any eternal life or any relationship with the holy God outside of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you have never put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your eternal life and for forgiveness of sins, I plead with you, like the writer of Hebrews, I beg you, don't put it off. You don't know the moment or the hour that your life on earth ends, but it will. You may be 20 and thinking you've got another 60 or 70 years but you don't know. We're praying for a lady right now through our growth group that is in her mid-30s who had a toothache and went into the doctor and found out that she has a tumor that's advanced to the fourth stage that's up in her head. You don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But it's appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. And you might say, well, what about those people that haven't gotten to hear God's word? Let me just be frank with you right now. God's going to have to deal with those people because you've heard his word. You've heard the gospel presented. You know that your only hope is in the blood of Christ, and God is going to hold you responsible for what you've done with that message of his sacrifice that he made for you? Have you put your faith solely in the blood of Christ for forgiveness of sins? If not, I plead with you, do it today. Come and, and just simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to wash away my sins so that I can have a relationship with you, so that I can have eternal life, so that I can have forgiveness. Do it today. Stand with me. We're going to offer an opportunity of response at the end of every message, every Sunday. The reason that we have this time is because I believe that when the gospel is proclaimed from the pulpit, the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts of men and women all throughout this congregation. And there are people here today that don't know if you were to die today, if today was your day, 
if you'd stand before a holy God in your own goodness, in your own righteousness, or washed by the blood of Christ. And so I plead with you, get it settled today. Respond. Kevin and I will be up here. We'd love to pray with you. We also have some folks that would love to just sit down and counsel with you and help explain a little bit more about what it means to put your trust in, in Christ. So during these moments, as Matthew begins to lead us, you come. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and the message of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and apply it to our hearts. Draw us to you that there would be, there would be no one today that leaves this place uncertain or unsure that if they were to die today, they'd stand before you in the righteousness of your son, Jesus, and hear those words, come on in. Father, let your spirit move among us today. We pray in Jesus' name.